Open to John chapter 5. We will be continuing with our series in John. And I must apologize beforehand for my frequent coughs. Had a little sickness issue last week and just... Let me see, I sense that coming, that's why I apologize, but now I'm still working out the gunk. As we all know what that's like. (laughs) But John chapter 5, we'll begin at verse 21. And follow as we read the Lord's word. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom He will. The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent Him. Truly, truly, I say to you, Whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life. And those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge. And my judgment is just. Because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Father, we ask that this word would come alive because of your spirit in our hearts today. Who is your Jesus. And sometimes in conversations with people we have this working out of who we're trying to describe who Jesus might be and and who Jesus is as we find him in the scriptures. And we often come in contact with and we might even find this in different, you know, whatever your favorite media outlet is, whether it's TV or movies or uh, Internet, whatnot. We find that people sometimes say what their opinion of Jesus is and usually comes out in, well, I don't think Jesus will be like that. Or even to the extent of saying, well, my Jesus wouldn't do that. My Jesus is kind. You know, we we pick, we we find that people, they pick their favorite characteristic of who Jesus is and they kind of harp on that and make everything about Jesus. It's about his kindness or it's about his mercy or it's about his social justice. That's, that's That's who my Jesus is. This is what he's trumpeting. So this is what we need to expound on and gather toward and go for. Or you might be the, the truth of Jesus. That's your favorite. That my Jesus is true, and so he's going to bash all the false things in the world. 
But you know, even even as believers, I think we a lot of times can fall under the assumptions and opinions that people around us have. And even as we're reading scripture, we might find some of the harsh sayings that Jesus said is a little uneasy to us. And we think, well, you know, I just Jesus, it's uncomfortable for me when you say, I don't think you would do that. It was an example from Thomas Jefferson, who um, I'm grateful for, for being one of the founding fathers of this country. But Thomas Jefferson had some very unique ideas about Jesus. And it's interesting, he, he took a Bible and he went to the Gospels and he literally cut out the portions of Jesus' life and his sayings and put them into another book and made that the Gospel according to Thomas Jefferson. And it's, it's known as the life and morals of Jesus of Nazareth. You could buy it at a bookstore. But his, this was his attempt to gather the Jesus that he thought should be expounded upon. Well, what was missing was the virgin birth. What was missing were any miracles from Jesus' life and ministry. What was missing was the resurrection. And Forrest Church, who actually wrote the introduction to the life and morals of Jesus of Nazareth, said this about Jefferson. Jefferson cut out and pasted together only those passages that made sense to him. We all remember Phil Donahue as well. My pictures of Phil Donahue climbing over people, trying to get him the microphone so they can ask their question. And he's the, you talk about a champion for the underdog. It is Phil Donahue. He wants to champion every underdog that there is. But it's interesting that Kent Hughes includes this in his commentary on John. He says, in, in the book Donahue, a best-selling autobiography, the celebrated talk show host Phil Donahue explains why he left the faith. If God the Father is so all-loving, why didn't he come down and go to Calvary? Then Jesus could have said, this is my Father in whom I am well-pleased. How could an all-knowing, all-loving God allow his son to be murdered on a cross in order that he might redeem my sins? You want to tell Phil? Yes. That's what he did. But yet there's a disconnect. There was a disconnect for Thomas Jefferson. There's a disconnect for Phil Donahue. But I think these two examples represent a majority of people who've ever heard about Jesus. Who begin to fit, whether it be, well, this who Jesus makes sense to me. And this is not, I don't think, you know, what, what Phil Donahue, I think, was dealing with was the equality factor. How can God be man? How can Jesus be equal with God? But these men, I think, represent, like I said, the host of people that whoever we come in contact with. And as we bump up with the phrase, oh, my Jesus, or, or I don't think Jesus would be like that. But I think our problem is this, that we and most people don't hear what Jesus says about himself. Hear in a way that processes down to our hearts to where we say, oh, what we do is try to fit him into our mold. Well, I think my Jesus would be like this. We actually, do a, we actually create our own functional little savior, our own functional God. If we reduce characteristics that Jesus declares himself to be and say, no, I think you should be this. Then we're saying, this is my God. Who, oh, this is my golden calf. This is who's going to save me. But yet, if we take those things out, are we hearing Jesus? Jesus is declaring something about himself in this passage. Are we going to fit him into a mold? Or are we going to allow him to speak to us to where it transcends or rather 
descends into our hearts. You know, Mark 8 and Matthew 16 record Jesus asking this very question to his disciples. Who do you say that? I, who, he first says, who do people say that I am? Who do you say that I am? In essence, who's your Jesus? And Peter says, you are. It's interesting that Jesus said in Matthew 16, it's recorded that Jesus told Peter, you know, flesh and blood didn't reveal this to you, but my father who was in heaven. There's a spiritual aspect of that discernment that that Peter had in that that Jesus, I think, is drawing out in this passage of John five. You know, Jesus isn't asking the Jews who are around him in John five who he is. He's declaring himself. And the question for them is, will they hear him? And the question for us, ultimately, is will we hear who he's declared himself to be? Will we allow his proclamation of himself to to shape our opinions of his character and his work so that he can be the Jesus he declares himself to be and not my Jesus? You know, in the context of this passage, or in this whole chapter, really, this passage appears in this whole chapter, we have the healing of the, pool, the invalid at the pool of Bethesda. There's a, a powerful Jesus comes to him. Do you want to get well? I have nobody to help me in the pool. Get up, take up your mat, go. He takes up his mat, goes. The Jews come to him later and they're picking on, hey, what are you doing picking up your mat on the Sabbath? I'm getting it. <laughs> well, the guy who healed me, he told me to pick it up. <laughs> Where is this guy? We've got issues with him. So they go to him, and what are you doing healing on the Sabbath? And Jesus responds by saying, my father's working, and so am I. See, while they were wanting to pick on the, the little nuance of, you, you, but you did that on the Sabbath. Jesus, I believe, was telling them, you're not even recognizing the mercy that's being proclaimed before you, even on a Sabbath. Because you, would, you in your lives, because you go off and save a sheep, that's an act of mercy. But yet, for me to heal somebody, you're saying I'm wrong. Missing the boat. They're picking on this little, but it was on the Sabbath. No, but then that's why Jesus responds by saying, my father. And then they freak out because he says, my father, which we would have done too. We're going to see in a minute. But then we have from verses 18 and 19 and 20. And Peter dealt with these, uh, all these verses where he, if you remember back a few weeks ago, he preached about Jesus' declaration of his equality with the Father, that being verses 17 and 18. And then we have in verses 19 and 20, Jesus' explanation of his equality, which would be submission. And we have his character of equality, which would be love. Remember that? Good. But today we're going to deal with the function Within Jesus equality with God, Jesus, I think, is revealing himself in two ways in this passage. The first one is as the giver of resurrection life. And the second is as judge. And these are very uniquely uh, providentially inter intertwined as we're doing this. But we'll look at these two separately and then uh, hope to bring them together. So the first aspect that we'll look at as Jesus proclamation is the giver of life. Jesus, the giver of life. Jesus gives life as a function of being one with the father. The father has bestowed on him as a demonstration of his love, the authority to give life. The Jewish hearers of this proclamation were further aghast because they considered the, only the father to have the power to grant life, especially eternal life. Now think about it. In their eyes, 
A man's claiming a man, a man that they're looking at, has claimed the power and authority to grant life. Something that rightfully belongs to God alone as creator. We too would have been confused and tempted to mock him. Think of even in our lifetime, because there have been those people that have claimed to be God. What's the initial response to those people? You're stupid. That's exactly what they're doing to Jesus. You a mere man. And later on in this, later on in John, they're saying, you're not even 50 yet. How can you say, what are you talking about? But they, he's, he's coming proclaiming something deeper than what they're picking on. And think about this. God sending his son to a rebellious earth is not a natural thought. That's what's beautiful about the gospel. It makes no sense naturally. It's only in the supernatural that it makes all the sense in the world. But this, no, no man can think of the fact that God would come to the earth and become one of his creation in order to save his creation. All the man-made religions of the world scoff at that. How dare God is too exalted? How dare he come and be one of us? But yet, it's precisely what God did in Jesus Another aspect of Jesus as being the giver of life is that he gives life to whom he will. We see that in verse 21 and this and verse 26 gives the reason because he has life in himself. Now, all of this function within the equality is Jesus telling them, I'm the one that everybody's been writing about. I'm the one that you've been reading about from Moses and all the way through the prophets. But they're not hearing Jesus, the life Jesus has and is, we find that in John 1, 4, where John says, in him was life and light. But the life Jesus has and is, is something that he gives to whom he pleases. We find this to be a spiritual life. It's eternal life. He causes the spiritually dead to come to life so they see with spiritual eyes and hear with spiritual ears found in their hearts. We, we know this as the doctrine of regeneration. Where God comes and makes what is dead in sin alive. This is being born again that Jesus was talking to Nicodemus about. If any man wishes to see the kingdom, he must be born again. And right after that, he's, when Moses or uh, Nicodemus rather says, How am I supposed to enter into my mother's womb again? He gives this, Jesus gives this response. You know, the wind blows where it wishes. So it is with the Spirit who gives life, or those who are born of the Spirit. It's something that Jesus is doing. It's a mystery. It's something not particularly seen immediately when, when Jesus comes and grants life. But yet, He has the power to, and the authority to grant this life. He's the one that brings that regeneration, this new birth. And being born again, it's a complete work of God, awakening dead souls and granting eternal life to them as he wills. Jesus gives life through his word, which is a powerful word indeed. And it's to those who hear. 
Jesus gives, and this is not simply a physical, he's got that. We find, we're going to find in John 11 that he speaks a word to Lazarus, and Lazarus, who has been dead, gets up and walks out of the tomb. That's a powerful word. But he's also, the emphasis here is on the spiritual life that Jesus is bringing. And Jesus is telling the Jews who are listening to him, they've just seen this miracle. They're not quite making sense of the miracle. and They're confused by it. And now Jesus is bringing explanation to that miracle with all that he's saying being the giver of life and the judge. Jesus spoke to the paralytic and he got up. His word is powerful. But noteworthy is the word choice that Jesus uses in verse 24. Jesus said, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. The noteworthy aspect is the verb has that Jesus uses as the sign of hearing and believing. Has is in the present tense, not the future tense. He does not say that they will have eternal life if they hear and believe. We see in this an order that shows that Jesus' life-giving comes before the response of hearing and believing. You see in your notes there, James Montgomery Boyce, in addressing this verse, says, The possession of divine life begins with God's action rather than man's. In other words, life is not the reward for believing. Life is not the reward for believing. It is the other way around. Life comes first. A person believes afterward. He believes because God has first placed his life within him. If the possession of eternal life were the result of believing, then the verse, verse 24, should have a future verb. Actually, the present tense of the verb is used to indicate that the one who believes does so because he already had the life of God within him. Think about this. That moment that you surrendered your life to Christ was not a meritorious act to where God said, oh, you have belief and faith. Now I'm giving you eternal life. That moment of that realization of our own sinfulness and our own need for a savior to be saved from the wrath that we just inherently knew was coming toward us because we weren't right with God. That moment is the first sign that Jesus has already granted you life. Isn't that amazing? Amazing. Eternal life is not the result of hearing and believing. It's the first sign of life that Christ has granted to whom he will. This theme's brought back to the forefront in the next chapter with, in John chapter 6, particularly verse 44. Jesus has declared himself to be the one who grants life. And this life is for those who believe now, which brings us to the next aspect of Jesus, the life giver. Jesus gives life as a present reality of what awaits us in eternity. The life that Jesus gives and his own respond to that we observe in verses 24 and 25 is a life that believers experience in fullness. The passing from death to life is a present reality for those who have the life of Christ in them. Jesus said the hour is coming and is now here. Which tells us that spiritual life is that present day reality for those who hear. 
In verse 25, we see Jesus saying those that here will live. Now, this would be a future tense. So let's take this in context with what we just read in verse 24. Here, Jesus says, when you respond, it's evidence that you already have my life in you. Where now Jesus kind of switches the emphasis to say, look, and those who will hear will live. That will live actually, we believe, has to do with the abundance of the life, not the evidence of it, but the abundance that is to be lived. Whereas verse 24 would be talking about the evidence of the life already residing in you. Verse 25, Jesus is pushing it forward to say now that those who will respond, they're going to live in my abundance and in my fullness. The abundance is to be experienced now. We see this again. John, he, he repeats themes as, we're, as we will go through this book. Even in John chapter 10, we find that Jesus has come to, to give us life and life abundantly. Spirit, Christ's life is being proclaimed through Christ for those that are blind, lame and paralyzed by sin so that they can be healed for all eternity. I'm really glad we live in this hour. You know, the invalid at the pool was healed by Jesus word, get up. And there was a call for obedience. The man had to get up and obey the word. In verse 24, we find a spiritual explanation for what the Jews had had seen in the natural. The hearing and believing are two explanations of the same reality. Jesus calling out to the spiritually dead of his choosing and their response. This hearing and believing involved in an obedience of the whole person to the powerful word of Jesus Christ. And in an aspect of the fullness of the present day reality, obedience is one of those fruits of existing in that fullness that Christ's life is within a believer. And there's a joy that comes in that obedience. There's a joy that comes prior, should be prior to obedience as the motivation for obedience, as well as a joy within the obedience and a joy after the obedience. But obedience is part of that experience and a fruit of the present life reality. Another amazing aspect of this present life is that those who hear and believe pass from death to life. They don't come into judgment. What believe this is the eternal judgment that awaits everybody, believer and Spiritually alive, spiritually dead. But yet Jesus is bringing a distinction to, wait a minute, you don't have to wait. To, you don't have to wait till heaven to experience the life that Christ is. You can experience that now. In Romans 8.1, Paul says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. No condemnation. So the result is that today we can live in a way that we're not fearing life and we're not fearing death which are very common experiences for those who are not spiritually awakened by Christ. We don't have to fear condemnation. We don't have to fear that one day we don't know what Jesus is going to say when he judges us. We don't know what he's going to say. No, we know. And we have that available to us. Jesus has removed the dividing wall of hostility between the Father and us so that we live in peace with him. We find that in Ephesians 2.14. And we now experience the fullness of the life that is Christ. We experience all that Christ is and all that he has in this fullness. We experience this in a fullness as best as we can in these bodies. 
when Jesus comes back and we are, or if we, if he comes back before we die, but at the, we'll see in a second, the last day when everybody gets raised out of the tombs, that will be a, a, the point, we find this in 1 Corinthians 15, where in, in the, the twinkling of an eye, we'll, there will be a shift and a change in the bodies of, uh, of believers. There, there is evidence that there's no condemnation, and that's when Jesus separates the sheep and the goats. And, but in this world, we have a nag, and that nag is our own sinful nature, our, which we a lot of times will say is indwelling sin. So we are to be experiencing this life that Christ has, but the nag of our indwelling sin a lot of times prevents us from experiencing that fullness. And we battle now, but when we're glorified, no more battle. We get to, in reality, experience all that Christ is and all that he has. We're, that is available to us. We're to be growing in that. That's called sanctification. We're to be experiencing that, to be applying that truth. But there's going to be a day when we won't have this nag any longer. But woven in these verses, we find that Jesus is declaring something Excuse me, declaring something about his life giving, but right after that declares something about him as judge. And he does this three different times. He declares himself as judge. And as we walk through this, we'll see that there's an aspect, there's an, an interweaving of Christ as life giver and judge. Now, this does not contradict what he said in John three seventeen, where it says the son has not come to condemn the world. Remember that right after John three sixteen. But that doesn't mean that he's not a judge. That means right now, while he's on this earth, while he was on the earth, he has not come to condemn. He's come to save, making his ministry salvific. It's it's saving oriented. But there will be a day when he sits on the throne as the ultimate judge. And we find in Philippians 2 where every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is the Lord. We see Jesus, the judge. And Jesus has been given authority to judge from the father. What's interesting in Jesus declaration of this aspect of his function within his equality with the father is that he declares that the father judges no one. The father has given the son all authority to execute judgment, even. Please note this, even with this distinction in their roles. God the Father and God the Son still maintain their equality. We've heard that Jesus, from Jesus, that all he does and receives is from the Father. He does nothing on his own. What he hears, he judges with. We find that in verse 30. And we know that he's listening to the Father. He's saying, I do nothing on my own. I only seek the will of my father. The father is indirectly, the father's indirectly judging through his son. But with the oneness that they are, he's able to tell his son, you're the one who judges. Because I know your judgment will be mine. Kind of that, that way. We know that I think this much. Just it may be in, in marriages, husband, wife relationships, or if you have a best friend that you do this with, that you can anticipate what that person is going to say in a particular moment. That you can you can know you're hungry and you want this to eat or you're in the mood for this and you love the person. How do you know that? Oh, we just know you. I mean, that's just a very small, my, that analogy breaks down very quickly, but that's just a small glimpse as to what the father, the son and the spirit enjoy in their unity. 
that they know. The father can give this to the son because he knows. You're not going to, this is no risk. I'm not risking giving you, I don't know what you're going to do. You know, it's kind of like when you have somebody doing something for you, delegated authority, they come back, they mess it all up, and you're thinking, I should have never done that. The father's not going to do that with the son. He's not going to come back and say, man, I should have never, ever made you judge. I can't believe what you're doing. I would have done all this differently. It's not happening. This is no risk involved in this relationship. And the father's bestowal of this authority to judge the son is judge uh, to the son is not a result of the father being too mad with his creation to be able to judge with equity. There will be people who tease this out and say, well, you know, the father, he's the angry one and the son, he's the loving one. And so the father needs to appease the uh, sorry, the son needs to appease the father and just calm him down a little bit. And he, Jesus needs to be the judge because he's really the loving one where the father's just too mad and he'll just he'll just lambast everybody. That's not happening here. It's a demonstration of love. Why? So all may honor the son. We find within John and the rest of the Gospels that the father is doing something very intricately. And the spirit then follows up with this. The father wants to elevate and exalt the son. And Jesus says by doing that, by by people exalting the son, what are they doing? They're exalting the father. So we have this symbiotic exaltation happening. And we also have the spirit who comes. What's the spirit's job? To exalt Christ. To bring to memory everything that that he said so we can obey that and walk in that. This oneness is a demonstration of love. The father grants all authority to the son because of the son's submission and love for the father and to exalt the son before creation so that in everything he'll be preeminent. He'll be number one. In everything he'll be number one. That all may honor him. And see the love that they have. But within Jesus being the judge, he has been given authority to judge from the father. We see that Jesus has a present judgment and a future judgment. The present judgment being is as a direct result of Jesus authority given by the father. He is the king judge. He has a present rule over the lives of his creation. There's an aspect of Jesus judgment that determines who will be granted eternal life. We find this in verses 21 and 22. As the father has power to raise, uh, give life and raise the dead, so does the son. But then right after that, Jesus says the father judges no one. We see in this that the, the, an, an aspect of the son uh, of his present judgment is to be able to go and seek. I want you to have life. And I want you to have life and I want you to have life and I want you to have life. And it seems as if he's so one with the father that he's actually doing the father's will. But the son is actually carrying that about. We see the illustration of this in the beginning of the chapter. Jesus, how many other invalids were around that pool? A whole lot, right? This one paralyzed guy says, I have nobody to pick me up and put me in there. Jesus chooses one out of many. It's an aspect of judgment. He's, there's the determination. I'm going to go to you. Now, it's amazing as we consider our own salvation is that we weren't asking for it. We were blind, lame, paralyzed by our sin. And Jesus came to us. So do you want to be healed? And I'm sure we gave an excuse too. But Jesus, you didn't. Where were you for, for this? And where were you for that? And, and I have nobody. Get up. I jumped ahead, and I shouldn't have. 
so I need to go back. I apologize for this. <laughs> I just skipped a paragraph. I need to go back to the previous point. Jesus has been given authority to judge from the Father. We see that two aspects. One, so all may honor the Son. But the second one, we find that Jesus said, because he is the Son of Man. Jesus gives the reason the Father has given all authorities because he is the Son of Man. And what Jesus is doing is most probably referring to Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, where we find the Son of Man. Daniel sees this vision. He has the Son of Man being exalted. And the Ancient of Days gives the Son of Man authority and dominion that's everlasting. The glory and dominion of the Son of Man's kingdom will never end. So as he's declaring himself to be the life giver, as he's declaring himself to be the judge, he connects for these Jews who are already having a very difficult time with what this guy is saying. And I'm that Son of Man. I'm the one that Daniel saw. That's me. And I have authority and judgment and dominion over all that you see. The Father's granted all authority to the to judge as an aspect of the revelation of Jesus' sonship, kingship in the kingdom of God. Just as any sovereign of a country is the final judge, so Jesus is the final judge of God's kingdom. Now, again, let's draw the amazement out of this. God wants to reveal through his son his love, his kindness, his mercy, and his justice. And his holiness. And he does this to rebellious subjects to be their atoning sacrifice. Jesus is the perfect man and the true God. Randy Alcorn, in his, I love these little books. You read him, you think, I just read a book. That's right. Do it. Pick up these little ones and build confidence. He says this, imagine a great and generous king. In the midst of his benevolent reign, he hears that his subjects have revolted. He sends messengers to investigate. The rebels kill him. So he sends his own dear son, the prince. They murder him viciously, hanging his body on the city wall. What What would you expect the king to do now? Send his armies and take revenge, right? Kill those rebels, burn their villages to ashes. That king certainly has the power and the right to avenge himself. But what if the king turned around and offered these criminals a full pardon? I will accept my son whom you murdered as the payment for all your rebellion. You may go free. All I require is that you admit your transgressions and embrace my son's purchase of your forgiveness. We'd be stunned blown away to hear this, wouldn't we? But the king's not finished. I invite any of you to come live in my palace. Eat at my table and enjoy all the pleasures of my kingdom. And I will adopt you as my own children and make you my heirs. So everything that's mine will be yours forever. Incredible. Do we have any right to respond by saying, how dare you do that? But yet, the world thinks, people think, well, my Jesus wouldn't be that way. I don't think God would do that. 
No, nor does the natural mind understand that God would be as the king of his creation come, condescend, becoming dependent upon the very beings that he created that are rebellious. We kill him. And then he offers a pardon. That not, that's not simply you're forgiven. That's you're forgiven if you accept this now. I'm inviting you to come sit at my table, live in my palace, and be my child. That's what the Son of Man does. So him, as judge, is a revelation of all that he is in being true God, true perfect man. And that rolls over into his present judgment. Determining who will give life. It's, it's, it's the one that was hanging on that wall is not there anymore, but has risen from the dead and now goes around saying, come live in my kingdom. Come, come, I've purchased your, come, I'm giving you life. He directs that. He determines that. He rules over the affairs of God's kingdom. He grants life and then governs the lives of those who have eternal life in them. His kingship is for his people now. He calls for and expects obedience. From those he's given life to. They're all under his rule. You know what? He came back to the man at the pool. And he gave him further instruction about righteous living. Jesus became his ruler because he healed him. Now, go sin no more. Live righteously. And now we see that that in verse 28 and 29 that Jesus has a future judgment. Verses 28 and 29 give us a glimpse of the future judgment that will be Jesus' own when he returns. There's a completely future event that Jesus is referring to in these verses. You know, these guys, as we've said, they're, they're having a tough time taking in and hearing all that Jesus is saying. But then Jesus pops up with, hey, don't marvel at this. You know why he does that? Look, don't marvel at the fact that I went into a, I went into all those, I went by the pool, saw those invalids and chose one out of the many, many don't marvel at that. Marvel at the fact that there's going to be something greater. There's going to be a greater judgment. There's going to be a judgment where we find this in Matthew 25 and we see it uh, foretold in the New Testament that Jesus will at that last, he, he'll have the last word on this earth, for this earth. And everybody will come back to life. And he will separate the good and the bad, the sheep and the goats. And he will say, come to your inheritance. And to you who didn't believe, I never knew you. Get away. And then he goes into, they say, well, whoa, 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 why? We thought we were. No, because the fruit of your deeds was not from a heart of spiritual life. It was for your own gain. But these who now are entering into their inheritance because the Christ life, the word was in them. The Son has been given all authority to execute judgment so all may honor Him. We too must honor Him as our judge. So this begs the question, how must we then live this Christ life? Jesus has done this. He is the one that's come. He is the one that has brought this life to us. Nothing of our own. No merit of our own. No mental ascent of our own. No figuring things out. Jesus has come and given us this life. How? How do we live in the fullness thereof? Glad you asked. 
The first aspect is to live the life of Christ. And I listed just a few. These are not exhaustive. These are just a few things that we can work on in order to live the life of Christ. And the first one is humility. To live the life of Christ is to be humble as Jesus was. We find that description also in Philippians chapter 2. Know the source of your eternal life. Lest we think that we made a good choice in choosing Jesus. Last week, Keith saying that so many people uh, live life as if Jesus is just an add-on. Well, we'll just add you on, and then I'm living my life, and i got my pursuits, and Jesus, if you're going to help me out, then I'll just add you on to what I'm doing, and that'll be great. But that's not the way Jesus says it goes. He has come. In John 15, we'll find out that he tells his disciples, you didn't choose me, I chose you, and I appointed you, that you may go and bear fruit, and your fruit would remain. There's a humility that we need to have and pursue as we're living the Christ life. We need to love Jesus. Is he your ultimate love? Is he the one that you enjoy the most? Is he the one that you cherish the most? Is he lovely to you? We need to love Jesus. The humility and gratitude that we experience in this life of Christ provides a foundation to love God and to commit to love him even more. We need to serve like him. Jesus, in Matthew 10, 45, says, The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Serve like Jesus. Deny yourself. Take up your cross daily and follow him. Are you asking the questions? Do you ask the questions in your workplace? Do you ask this question in your marriage and in your homes? Do you ask this question for your, your, your benefit in this church? Do you ask the question, where can I be serving? Where can I be demonstrating the Christ life that's in me? Serving humbly, loving Jesus, but serving I, if I had the gifting of Peter to jump up and down and shout like he did, I would say this to this one, but know the word. That means know Jesus. Know the word. Why? Because as your understanding grows, so will he. We've been in our home reading the book in the Chronicles of Narnia series, Prince Caspian. I wanted to read the book before we saw the movie that's coming out in a few weeks. We have a few chapters left, but we, uh, this past week, got to a chapter which was great because Lucy finally meets up with Aslan the lion. And she had been seeing him, and the, her, her brothers and sister thought that she was crazy because they couldn't see him yet. So she finally, I'm giving the movie away, I'm sorry. Analogies for today. She goes, meets up with him, runs through these trees, meets up with him, throws her arms around his mane and just enjoying him. And she steps back. She says, Aslan, you're bigger. And Aslan said, no, Lucy, you're older. As she grew in her understanding of who he was, he became bigger to her. As we grow in understanding of who Jesus is, He's going to be bigger. You know who he's going to be? King. Judge. We will honor him. The Son of Man. Know the word. 
live under second aspect of how we must live this life, Christ's life, live under the authority of Christ, the judge. Exalt Jesus. See that Jesus is exalted in your life as king over all aspects of your life. Is there an aspect of your life that you've not allowed him to go? You give him most. You give him 90% of your heart. But there's something, there's something precious. There's a, as Thomas Watson said, a precious sin. There's something that you're holding on to that you're just saying, God, you will not touch this aspect of my life. You will not go there. We don't say that. We just ignore it. But in our ignoring it, we're telling God, I will not let you there. God says, I don't work that way. As we exalt Jesus, what happens? This is what happens. We have in that exaltation this mysterious, cowering back fear, but also drawing forward to who he is. To where those places of our heart that we've kept secret, that we've kept hidden. We're, Jesus, you have to touch this. You have to touch it. I don't want to keep this from you anymore. Exalt Jesus in every. No area is off limits to him. He is the exalted king. We are to live under his rule. And from that exaltation, I think, directly flows a proper fear of God. This has always for me been. How do you fear God? How do you do this? How, how do we. Scared? It's supposed to be scared silly? Or is it, what is this? Reverential awe. That's how we always, that's the biblical definition for fear of God. But what's that look like? That's too mystical for me. You know what I think it is? I think it's an aspect of all of that. Because when we truly see Jesus for who he is, guess what? We're going to be a little scared. You look at whenever he did some, some of his miracles, particularly when he's walking on the water toward his disciples... He didn't say, guys, it's me. He said, don't be afraid. Because these guys are probably going. Oh, boy. Um, uh, can I change my shorts? Do you have that aspect in your relationship with God? Do you have an aspect that he is? He is so exalted as your king that there's a fear. You're afraid of him. Because if we're not, then he's too small and he can fit in our pockets and he can, he can do what we tell him. He's not Jesus anymore. He's not. He's your Jesus. He's not his. He's not God's son, Jesus. He becomes a functional savior. But therein, in that exaltation, as we just said, there's there's a weird draw to us that we are looking and yearning and wanting to be more with him. I don't know what that I, I think I'm sensing that in my life. I love God with all that I am. But yet, there's a big aspect I'm afraid of him. He can zap me in a moment. In a moment. And we find we should live under this fear, this authority in our lives. As, you know, here in Philippians chapter 2, Paul's going through, have this mind and have this humility, which was Christ. Have this in yourself and became obedient to the point of death, death on a cross. See, that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he's Lord. And then verse 12. Now, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. It's God, chapter 1, verse 6 in Philippians. God's at work with, in you to do as he pleases. 
work it out with fear and trembling. There should be a proper awe that we have of God that sometimes we're slow to say something about him. Sometimes we say, I don't let me check to make sure I'm right before I say that. Lest we make him something of our own invention, what makes sense to us. But in 1 Corinthians 4, we're told that we will be judged. Believers will be judged by Jesus. And the hidden things, the secret things are going to be made plain. They're going to be exposed. I'm not looking forward to that day. At all. But yet, I'm looking forward to that day. Because you know what it says right after that? After Jesus, he exposes everything. Paul tells the Corinthians, ultimately us, then each man will receive his commendation from God. The NIV translates it, each man will receive his praise from God. It's amazing. Because we can disqualify ourselves awfully quickly, but yet God comes in that commendation, what is the crown of life? That he rests on our heads. That we take off and cast before him saying, I'm undeserving. And he puts it right back on. We take it off and put it right down. He puts it right back on. Worship. Exalt Jesus. Fear God. Obey Jesus. In what he has commanded you. We know what this means. This is not mystical for us, y'all. We don't have to figure out and fast and pray so for months on end to think, well, what should I? Should I? Um, McDonald's or Burger King? Um... You know, that's silly, but yet we do that with some issues in our lives that it's very clear from Scripture what we're supposed to be doing. But yet we want to pray and fast about it as if God might change his word. No. No, the word. Obey Jesus and submit to Christ's authority. Please, I think we have more of a propensity than we realize to be the judge of our own lives. And it comes out with all of our opinions and our assumptions. Even if you never tell anybody, you might be one of those people that thinks, well, I don't, I don't tell people what they should do, but I sure think about what they should do. If you're thinking about what other people should do, then not only are you the judge of your own life, you're the judge of somebody else's life. And it might be that you're not trying to be the Holy Spirit for them, you're trying to be the judge. I think this should be right. And God, you're not doing this fast enough in this person's life. We need to be very, very careful. But living submitted to Christ's authority is going to mean that we are not the judge of our own lives or other people's lives. But yet, in John chapter 7, Jesus says, judge with right judgment. There is a judgment that the people of God are supposed to have. We find this in 1 Corinthians as well. You're supposed to be judging things, but that judgment should be submitted under the judgment of Christ. Does that make sense? We should not be arbitrarily because we'll get to be just like Thomas Jefferson. Well, this makes sense to me. So let's do it this way. This is what I think you should do. Absolutely not. We should be submitted to Christ's authority, knowing his word and then saying humbly, believe this is what's being exposed and it's shining light onto your life. And this might be an area that you need to consider. This might be a direction that you need to go in. This might be, do you see the difference? We're not just coming with our own opinions, our own assumptions, and our own, oh, I just think you should do this, because it makes sense to me. Now, we, we have a fictitious Savior then. Live the life of Christ. Live under the authority of Christ, our judge. Let's stand up together.
Jesus said that the authority that's been, been given and granted to him is so that all may honor the Son. The King, our King, has come to save us. He has called out to us, and for some of you may still be calling out, saying, come, get up, come to me, be saved. But the King of all glory, whose dominion does not end, and his authority does not go away, we can't outlast him. This is the one. This King, highly exalted, has come to earth to live a perfect life, die a brutal death and be raised from the dead to satisfy God's wrath and remove for those who will hear and believe for those who have eternal life that they won't have to face condemnation they won't have to face their sins being on their back anymore we have forgiveness from our king Lord we are Amazed as we properly should be. And Lord, I ask that as we see you, Jesus, exalted in our minds, in our hearts, that there will be a reality in our own souls, in the question of our own hearts. Why, God? Why? Why me? Why do I get to be the one that that you chose, Jesus, to give eternal life to? Why, why, when I was paralyzed and blind and lame in my own sin, loving, hating you, why? And then, thank you. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you.